Welcome to the Mike on Much podcast. I'm your host, Mike Veerman. I'm here with my friend and trusted producer, Max Kerman. Max, what's up? Yeah, man. Just uh, celebrating the day Jesus came back. That's the day, right? Easter Monday, man. <laughs> we're now a religious podcast. <laughs> Let's take a moment and just appreciate. Shane, we're also here with you, our pop culture aficionado. I'm back too. <laughs> <laughs> our uh, our last podcast we recorded just before we went to uh, last proper podcast we recorded just before we left for Vancouver and the Junos, uh, and then we did a bonus one which we encourage you to go listen to because it was we recorded that right in the middle in the heart of everything before obviously the big award that you guys were nominated for, uh, and now we are back and it's been a bit of time. We're doing another morning recording actually. This is becoming more frequent for us. Kind of into it. It's like it's practicing for our morning show. That's true. My voice is always a little more hoarse in the morning because I. I usually don't talk till about 11 a.m. Yeah, it's kind of, kind of I sexy. get brain fog for sure. Oh, really? Yeah, it's not the same. Hey, speaking of Jesus, uh, <laughs> I just watched the first three episodes of Waco. Um, David new, Koresh? Yeah, David Koresh. It's uh, the David Koresh story. Do you know this one? You know the big the cult? Is this the one, uh, like the, the sex cult? No. Well, there was sex. Basically, you're thinking of Wild Wild Country, which yeah, is on I Netflix like right now. Uh, you haven't seen that? No. Oh, that's... Is it good? good. Oh, it's bad. So for our Ooh. listeners, David Koresh was this sort of charismatic, like all, you know, uh, of these cults, he's a charismatic leader that people followed and he had a, a big compound uh, in Waco, Texas. And eventually the government uh, had to basically bombard this uh, compound and it became like a, a shootout. Yeah. And, oh, and a I lot know of people died. One. It was like a big deal in yeah, the 90s. Of, yeah. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> you know, it's funny getting to know his character a little bit. Taylor Kitsch from Friday Night Lights, like the hunky guy in that show. He plays Koresh. Plays Koresh. And you kind of come to like Koresh. Well, a lot of people did, clearly. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you kind of have a soft spot for him. But he, he, his move was, he's like, because there's like married couples that live on the compound. And his move was like, sex is bad. No one should be having sex. That for me. <laughs> I'll, I'll bear the burden of that. And so he got to have sex with all the guys' wives. Yeah. Wow. And, ha- and, and had their children, too. And he also got to be the lead singer of the band. He had a band like on the compound. Wow, was and it any good? Be, uh, they're okay. They played My Sharona, according to, <laughs> <laughs> according to the TV show. And he got to be the leader of this uh, cult. Yeah, the big three, as they say, sleeping with everyone's wives, lead singer of a band, leader of a cult. Is that is that a thing? The I, big three? Hey, maybe All in right. Max's diaries as a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> it's my big three. Well, the thing is, if you become the lead singer of a band, you usually can get to do the other two right. anyway. <laughs> like that, you just do that one first, and yeah. then you get the other two. Yeah. So anyway, I recommend the show. That's really good so far. The other piece of thing, piece of news that happened to me this morning uh, was about two weeks ago. Or, yeah, about two weeks ago, Amanda um, Ash sent me um, a commercial for this company called Bombus or Boombus Bombus, and they make socks. Okay. And the commercial is really like well done. And there's a celebrity appearance by Zac Efron in it. And basically, it started as a little startup with this idea of, I guess, uh, homeless people don't have socks. That's like the one piece of clothing that they have a hard time getting. So they use the Tom's model. Uh, so for every pair of socks that you buy, uh, they give it to a homeless shelter or people that need socks. So I was really taken by the ad. It's like really well done. I highly recommend everybody to check out the ad and Zach Afron makes like a celebrity appearance and like he's eating so it's like really funny. So anyway, I I bought two pairs of socks. And like I don't know, has that ever happened to you guys where you've I've like, bought socks, yeah. Yeah. I've no, done that. No, no, but like you've seen a really good commercial. <laughs> I've done that. Uh, no, where you've seen a commercial like online or somewhere and you're like, I need to buy this right now. Has that ever happened to Great you? Great question. Nothing that jumps to mind. 
Because normally I don't get <laughs> maybe uh, a snuggie. I got a snuggie as a gift for somebody once as a joke. Okay, but it wasn't because the commercial was. Well, that you good? saw the trailer during the Super Bowl that was like, oh, "Watch this film." Right great point. Now. Yeah. That that film, uh, uh, Cloverfield, yeah, whatever the latest one. Where I I saw the basically we were watching. I was watching the Super Bowl and they had a trailer for that Cloverfield movie that just came out on Netflix, and they were like available after the Super Bowl, and I was so blown away because I was like. Once the trailer came on, I'm a sci-fi guy. I'm like, oh my god, this is amazing! That like, I was already excited about another Cloverfield movie coming out. And then at the end of the trailer, when they said available on Netflix after the Super Bowl, my mind was blown because I was like, whoa, the future's now! Like, if you told young Mike that one day he would see a trailer on his like TV for a movie that he was interested in, and it was going to be available after like in you know an hour, I would be like, this is awesome! So I'm going to stay up and watch it just because I'm so excited about this advertising sort of uh, initiative and it ended up being the biggest piece of shit I've ever seen. <laughs> well, I'm, this is similar to my story too. <laughs> uh, 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 have you ever bought anything like just because like you were so impressed by the ad? No, but I wanted to when I was young, when I see these ads for the, they're like life-size cars for kids. They're like, uh, oh yeah. And I always wanted one of those like Jeeps that I could drive around and it was like my dream to drive one of those. And then I never got it as a kid and i've always been afraid of driving ever since i was like i was like i hate driving now i hate cars because you didn't get the yeah. gift you and i'm denied. convinced if instagram existed at the time when my parents were younger i would have had the car because they'd be like it's so cute to have them in that car and then they'd get all the likes from the photo and the insta stories <laughs> that is a hilarious rethinking of something yeah I see. I've never thought about that that angle. Well, it's like ninety percent of baby clothes industry is based on Instagram. It's like you th- slap on the kids saying like uh, "Raptors is home" or whatever t shirt, and then you get a thousand <laughs> likes. Most popular seller. <laughs> Raptors, yeah. Raptors is home, or like "We the North" or whatever. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Toronto versus everybody, whatever. Exactly. So these socks. So these socks. So anyway, so the socks arrived. I forgot that I'd order them, and then they arrived, and I'm like, oh yeah. Anyway, the socks are also in the commercial. They're like, <laughs> we use the best technology. They talk about. The technology in the socks for like three of the five minutes. So I'm like, like biodegradable or something. Yeah, something like that. You know, words that I don't quite understand. Uh, like biodegradable. Uh, and uh, I'm just like, wow, I'm so blown away. Like, anyway, the socks are just like dress socks. Like they're nothing. They don't feel any different. I almost prefer athletic socks. I that's like my go-to. Like just like hands. Of course, those are the socks. best. Socks. They're, they're way more comfortable. And if I have one pet peeve about socks is when they, if I'm wearing Doc Martens and they start to slide oh. down. Oh my God. That's everybody's pet peeve. That's okay. the worst. And it's happening to me on my left foot right now. Fuck oh. that. So here's my question. Do I call out Bombas or whatever the fuck they're called? that's what you're yeah. doing right now. Just because well, it's for charity doesn't mean you can do a shit product. It's like, is the problem <laughs> Live podcast aside. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we worked hard on that one. Man. <laughs> Like and then, but then I started thinking: Is like, is it is it is the problem with me? Do I have weird ankles? Like, is my left leg weird? Uh, like, I don't know. <laughs> the sock is actually causing you psychological damage. It really now is. you're starting to reflect on your. It's I not know. your fault. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, I'm gonna. So so do I? Do I? Send, they they actually on the way here. I got an email saying review the sock. Just me. send them a note saying your your product's slipping. There you go. That's it's a double entendre. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that's me and Bombas socks. I don't totally recommend them, but if you want to do something nice and spend forty-five dollars for two pairs of socks, uh, man, <laughs> it's fifteen dollars a pair, and then with the shipping from America, it was forty-five dollars, and that might even be USD. That sucks. And, and moving forward, I should just give 
a $30 bill. There's no such thing, but $30. (laughs) What I was going to say is instead of spending the money on the socks, just get like a $15 uh, Tim Hortons gift card and give it to uh, someone struggling. That's, you know what? That is the answer. Yeah. That is, I think the, what I was looking for when I came to you with this problem. Yeah. That's what I got to do. But I think the problem is that, uh, it's just socks is the problem for them, right? Yeah. Like they probably get a lot of like quarters and toonies and stuff. Too. <laughs> it's a, it's the fact that they don't have the, the proper uh, sock work. Yeah, right? maybe I just go to like Chinatown and get – because that's where my dad buys all of yeah. his socks. That's where I got buy my socks. Great deals on socks yeah, just in Chinatown. Buy a bunch of, that should be the new movement. People buy like a three-pack of socks. Uh, Foot Locker always has a sale on socks. That's yeah. true. And you just buy that. It would probably be 10 bucks tops for three. Yeah. And just go, hey, toss them to some homeless dude. Yeah. Or woman. <laughs> I, think, I think we're onto something, guys. That's the play. That's the new charity movement that Mike Omach is starting. I'm going to do that. Yeah. I gave a homeless woman uh, 20 bucks the other day. Oh, really? Yeah. But then she started following us, oh, and nice. uh, it was it kind of backfired a little bit. We're like, oh, that's too much money. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So today is actually supposed to be the Juno episode, Sorry, guys. Sorry, really, um, hijacked that. That's okay. okay. We, uh, we've got Bob Rock on the episode. He is a legendary Canadian uh, producer. He's done countless bands uh, that we will get into once we go talk to Bob Rock. But guys, we spent the weekend in Vancouver, all three of us, kind of separately in our own sort of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shane, I saw you a couple times out with your co-director, Mark. Uh, Max, obviously, I saw you when we were doing interviews. But yeah. other than that, you're a busy boy on the weekend. Yeah. But how was everybody's weekend? I guess, I guess our listeners have wanted to know if they don't already know what happened with the big award that you guys were all nominated for, the vi- video of the year for Knocking at the Door. Jane? We did not win. <laughs> we lost. Our Kells were collectively 0 for 4 uh, with, uh, with their award nominations. We, but you know what, though? Uh, and it, maybe it's easy for me to say because we've won some Juno's, award, Juno's already, but uh, I didn't really care. I mean, was it, did You're it sting You're out of the album you? cycle. Yeah, out of the album cycle. This was the, Going and getting to play was a big deal for us. I did feel were, were you like I know you're and you're more competitive. I mean, I guess I'm kind of competitive too. But were you like ah fuck? Well, I ju- I did want to win just because it sounds cool to say I'm a Juno winner. Yeah, it still sounds cool to say Juno nominee. But yeah, it didn't. I didn't start feeling weird until because Mark and I kind of were. It seemed like we were going to do your next music video, but then we lost the award, and then you called and you're like ah yeah, this is going to somebody else. So I was like oh. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, if we had won, Mark, yeah. maybe we would have kept. You know what? I was thinking about putting that in when I texted you guys about it. I was like, guys, if you had won. Winners only. <laughs> <laughs> I was literally going to put that in. And then I was like, no, 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 that's not funny. But it had nothing to do with that. Oh, I know. Yeah. I just, uh, I'm just saying like, you know, you get thoughts that you know aren't true, but you yeah. still think them. And you think about like, like the world, like karma or whatever, like just mm-hmm. like the mysterious forces in the air. You're like, if we had won the thing, then this would have led to that. When most of the yeah. time, those ideas are just like made up in your head. Well, the award was, uh, you know, that award specifically was at the gala. So for people that attend the Junos, uh, basically the way it works is the big show is the Sunday night. So basically they have a Friday night sort of reception where you get there and it's free drinks. And then they have the gala on the Saturday night. That's where they give out all the awards that aren't televised. That's where the video of the year award was. And then they have the big show on the Sunday. So when I went to the Junos, I was kind of like on alert. I stayed with the nut. Like I was basically kind of like, I'm here for a couple interviews, but anything that seems to happen, I'm down for it. And then the nut literally got me into everything that weekend. So I ended up at the gala. Going to the gala and the main show. And the main show. Where did you sit for the main show? I was like 
I would say like eight rows back and to the left behind Shane and Mark. Which oh, was so you just, got good seats too. Oh yeah, like I was I was able to watch you guys kind of do your thing. But hilariously, I was just by myself, so I'm just kind of having a beer, enjoying the show, <laughs> crying at Dallas's tribute to Gord, like yeah. by myself. Uh, but it was uh, it was a cool experience. But the reason I bring this up is because at the gala, uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, but so I was literally sitting at the furthest back table. Anyone that followed us on Instagram would have saw my stories, and. There was a guy being uh, um, honored. His name is Gary Slate. And as part of this uh, sort of like award uh, being uh, like this Lifetime Achievement Award for Gary Slate, he's supposed to have it presented by Kim Stockwood and Chaos. So, yeah. So, get this. So, the award starts going and they, they, they're like, okay, and welcome to the stage, Kim Stockwood and Chaos. Chaos isn't there. Literally causing chaos. So, Kim Stockwood gets up. She starts doing the honor for uh, this guy, Gary Slate. I'm like, at this point, I'm going to duck out. And I haven't done any content, you know, guys, because I need to do snackable according to the net. Yeah. So I am decided I'm going to step outside of the gala and mention like, oh, this is where we're at. I'm going to take some footage. I'm going to get film of when Shane and Mark hopefully win. Could I just cut yeah. you for one second? So you didn't hear what her speech was about. I heard the start of it. Oh, because it was all about being on time <laughs> and how uh, this guy was all about teaching chaos and the importance of being on time and being there for people. So Mark Myers and I were looking at each other and like mouth agape, like, holy shit, this is the most cringeworthy speech given what's happening right now. Because chaos was not there. He was late. Yeah. So I start to leave the area and just as I'm walking out of like kind of the enclosed part, I see a dude like with a backpack and like a, a leatherman jacket sort of thing, like and a hood on. And he's walking at a brisk pace, like toward kind of the stage. And a security guy goes, yo, yo. And then the dude starts picking up the pace. And I'm like, what am I watching right now? And this is wow. Like she's speaking on stage mm -hmm. and I'm walking out and I'm like, holy crap, and the guy has a backpack. Like, this could be something. So then the dude starts to really pick up the pace and starts running. Then security starts running, says something. Four other security guards start chasing this dude with the hood on and the backpack and the coat. And I'm like, holy shit. I'm like, what is going on? Dude is going really fast now, and he's got four security guards running after him. Gets around the side of the stage. I don't see what's going on anymore. I'm like, that is nuts. I leave because I'm like, I don't know what's going on, but I don't want to be there for when it goes yeah. down. Sorry, guys. Thanks for the text. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then so I go out and I start filming my thing and I'm like, wow, like I can't believe I just saw that. Security comes walking up like three minutes later, like, oh shit, man. It was chaos trying to run to the stage to make wow. his speech. And I guess they tackled him once they got backstage. Yeah. So I saw like the start of all this go down. It was the weirdest thing I've, I've ever seen. But uh, then word started to spread throughout the gala that like, so what I didn't see was I guess chaos got up on stage at some point. Yeah, yeah at the end of it. Yeah. What'd he say? Exactly. Security just beat the shit out of me. <laughs> this is opening line. No, I, it was kind of weird. I didn't. I thought he was just saying that uh, this person helped him and he made a joke about how this person made him a lot of money. Like it wasn't the best or most like tactful speech in the world. Yeah. And then Gary said like, you still owe me that money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I wanted it to be way more emotional and like apologetic for, for missing that, especially given the, the lead up to him not being on stage and then finally being on stage. I also don't think he was trying to outrun security. I don't think he heard security. He was watching the speech and he was nervous. He wasn't going to get up there to say his thing. So his speed was just correlating with his sort of like sense of panic about being like, oh shit, I've been late and they're already doing the award. And the whole bit is about how I'm always late because yeah. that's literally what the but speech opened with. Is it not security's job if someone's running towards the stage, like covering their identity with a backpack? And not responding to, to security. If they didn't tackle and it was some bomb, it'd be like, why wouldn't security stop this man? 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be their argument mm-hmm. for sure, which I also understand. And it was like a, the gala is like everyone's in blazers and ties and it's like mm-hmm. a very dressed up thing. And chaos was definitely in like a more of a sort of like a casual look. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I also like and I got stopped every time I went anywhere. Like, hey, show us your thing. Show us your thing. Like that, that's like something that happens when you. Yeah. Yeah. Have to like flash your or whatever. So. So then we get to the moment. I actually did film it, and, uh, you know, they announced that Grimes, we should let our listeners know, Grimes is winning video of the year. And just like, ah, damn it. And then, uh, and then I didn't see really. I saw you in the hallway afterward, like an hour later. Uh, and then later that night, I don't know if we ran into each other. Oh, we ended up at the Jesse Reyes thing. But, but I guess, like, like, to Max's point, like, I guess in the moment where you just kind of like, ah, shit. Like, did it take the window to the night for you? Not really. I was, the thing was, I was planning this speech that was a little risque, and I had thought that the venue was going to be, I'll say eight times smaller than it was. It was a huge place that was kind of scary to give a speech in. And it was kind of like people were drinking and eating. I wasn't sure if I did win, if especially since I'm such a no-name person, if I'd have a captive audience for saying what I'm saying. So this sense of relief came over me that I knew I wouldn't have to do it. And then I just felt like I could relax for the rest of the night. Whereas it was a little tense leading there up. There is that. Because you know, the words that we were up for, I was thinking, I was like, oh, what am I going to say? Planning in your head, like, okay, what this is going to look like, how it's going to feel. And then when you don't win, there is part of you, the competitive part of you goes, oh, man, I want to mm-hmm. win. But there's another part of you that goes, oh, okay, good. I don't do that. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. I ran the good version of the speech in my uh, alternate reality. Yeah. And then I ran the reality if it goes very badly. Yeah. And I was like, oh, now I don't even have to walk that path at yeah. all. So. That's the problem with getting nominated in the first place is that, you know, you set yourself up. It's more of a burden. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the rest of the weekend was great. I don't know. Is there anything else to talk about that stood out? I mean, the show was great. Yeah, we were, the band was really happy with how it all went. Um, and once again, the thing I, I've learned from doing anything in the, in the band world is that the first time you do anything or you try something new, it's always overwhelming because there's just so many new factors that you have to take in and figure out how to communicate with your partners, whether it's the people in the band or the producers or whatever. And then the, the second time you do it, it becomes easier. And the third time it's even easier. And that goes for like a live bit or, you know, recording a song or anything, any creative endeavor. And because we've done the Junos three times now and we know the producing team, it was actually really fun this time because I knew kind of what questions to ask, what was available to us, what the kind of parameters of the performance could possibly be. And there's just more trust in the whole process. Yeah. Oh, that looked awesome. Oh, by the way, your performance looked awesome. Thank you. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny because I've already said this a week ago to you, but on the pod, people are going to be like, oh, God, they don't even tell him that his performance was good. (laughs) Uh, It was awesome, though. But for our listeners, if you haven't seen it, which I can't imagine you haven't, it was amazing. Wait, was the fire hot? Fire was very hot, actually. Yeah. You Like the first time we ran in soundcheck, we were all just like stopped playing and just started filming it and got really hot. Is this the most pyro you've ever had? We've never had pyro before. But uh, yeah, it was cool. You know, we had to spend a little bit more. Uh, we had to, we went over budget, and it kind of comes out of the band's pocket to, uh, to to use the pyro. And it was like one of those questions, like, ah, do we really need to do it? Is this like a good investment in the show? You make it back through album sales, though, well, the performance. <laughs> Did you see that fire? Let's get to Sam's. <laughs> Sam's. <laughs> but uh, we were happy that we did because because we were the only pyro of the night, and the song kind of calls for it. And also another thing which is interesting is that. You know, the video that we did together, there's fire in that. And that sort of helped dictate how we were going to do the live show. So it's like you make a decision a year ago and that ends up, you know, taking shape in another way. Mm -hmm. You know, the Junos. 
Well, one last thing as I was leaving uh, the Juno. So everyone had a great Sunday night, party, party, party. And then Monday is the inevitable flight home. So when I booked my flight home, I wanted to be on the Nuts flight because the Nut had the, uh, the credit card out. So I knew that we could get the black, I could get the ride to the airport and the ride back to my place with the Nut. <laughs> what I didn't realize is you guys were also on our flight. Yeah. So all the Raquel's on the flight. So it's time to get on the plane. And the minute I get on, I'm looking in first class. And who's there? But Ed Robertson from the Bare Naked Ladies. Right. Oh, exactly. and to my left, there's Sarah Harmer. Oh, shit. Oh, there's the rest Sarah of Sarah Harmer was in first class? That's right. Not first class, but uh, on the plane. Okay. Was Ed in first class? Ed was. Ed was, yeah. With his whole family. But the rest of B&L was in the, the regular plane. No. I'm not kidding. Jim Cregan. Yeah, Jim Cregan. Economy, man. Ed flies first. Damn straight. And uh, Sarah Harmer. <laughs> Sarah Harmer. All the Arkells guys. And I started thinking, shit, if this plane goes down, there's a lot of Canadian music on this plane. Yeah. Nobody, my name will not make it into the newspaper <laughs> at all. I'm like, it will. Do you think your name would make it in? Or would it be Bare Naked Ladies Go Down in Plane? Uh, I think it, you know, it's funny that you had this thought because. Uh, I think now our name would make it in the paper, <laughs> but we have flown to Vancouver like years ago, maybe for the Junos in 2010 or, or something like that, some event. And uh, Kevin Drew and other Broken Social Scene members were on the plane. And I always think, I was like, well, we're not going to be mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, this would be huge news. And like my family would have to wait until the next day for my name to be published in the paper. Yeah. It'd be in the spec for sure. Yeah, was Stephen was... Page on the plane? I didn't see Stephen. No, they have to take different planes. <laughs> <laughs> different flights, man. Actually, I'll be honest. Every time I'm on a flight and someone more famous than me is on it, that's the first thing I think of. <laughs> do you think when you're on a plane, do you always think it's going to explode now? going to explode now. Not explode, but mm. just go down kind of thing. And I always think that. That flight got real shaky at the end. Did you remember that? Oh, yeah. We went around and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. So, And you guys, uh, just in case people don't listen to the bonus episodes, yeah. which I'm assuming like 80% of people don't listen to the yeah. bonus one. You guys saw Bare Naked Ladies dress rehearsal. We did, but we'll save this for the Ed Robertson episode. Oh, So we also gotcha. got a great interview with Ed Robertson, and we got some B&L stories for when we do that. So stay tuned for that. We got so many episodes yeah, in the we can, got a guys. Lot of, yeah, we, we got, got a lot of good work there. Also, actually, maybe this is a good question for anybody who's listening. Because sometimes I think it's like, with these standalone episodes, there might be a lot of people who actually like that because they just want to hear the three of us talk at each other and don't even care about the guests. Because... And so I'm curious to know if you're listening, like, do you pick and choose episodes depending on the guest specifically? If, if you like the guest, you listen. And if you don't, you're not going to listen to the episode at all. Do you uh, just listen to the top and bottom and not the interview? Do you only listen to the interview? What are your listening habits? Write us on Twitter or uh, iTunes. Yeah. Okay. Do you want more bonus episodes where it's just the three of us yapping? Yeah. That's kind of the question. Because we could do those anytime. We don't yeah, even need a guest. Yeah. That would be the easiest thing ever. But today we do have a guest. We do. You like that segue? Good job. Uh, today we have Bob Rock, who is a, uh, like, like I said, a superstar uh, Canadian producer. He's in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. He's produced uh, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, Metallica, Metallica, Tragically Hip, like all these major, major artists throughout the years. He's worked with Aerosmith. He's worked with Buble. Buble. Uh, so we, we talk about all that in this conversation. Uh, we did this in Vancouver. Basically, I got in at 7 in the morning. Max is like, at 11 a.m., meet me at Bob's studio. Yeah. I'm like, okay. So we meet in the parking lot. He had this, in this like kind of like very uh, normal looking parking lot, there was just one balling car. And we were like, that has to be Bob Rock's What was car. the license again? Well, I can't, we can't say it because people could look it up. No. I mean, what is the license? If it's a custom plate, it doesn't yeah. matter. I can't remember what no, it was. No, Webmaster Dan would remember. I can't yeah. remember. A lot went Paradise on. Paradise City? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's Guns N' Roses. Yeah. No, but he, he did the Guns N' Roses. Did so, he? No, no. no. Oh, okay. 
Okay, so we, uh, first of all, uh, guys, I'm sorry uh, that you came away empty handed at the Genos, but we all had a great time. We did, we had a great time. And you guys still do great work. Yeah. I guess. And you're going to continue yeah. to do I'm in hoping. the future. Uh, so all the best, and hopefully next year we're back there. Uh, That's right. With some more noms. Yep, yep. Let's get to Bob Rock. Well, we kind of want to start a bit at the start. You know, you've talked about growing up in the 60s and sort of loving the Beatles and the Stones. And I actually read that your mom brought you to see the Beatles in like a layover in Winnipeg on their way to New York. That's right. She, uh, I was in school. As an engineer, I'm going to have to have you speak yeah. into, into the microphone. <laughs> this is incredible. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we, we, her, her friend worked at Air Canada and she got a phone call in the morning. And so she grabbed my sister myself and we got in the little Volkswagen and drove to the airport and we stood out there and they came off the plane and waved. I guess they were fueling, right? Yeah. And went back in. So I saw them. It was amazing. So I was wondering if that's like something where you would sort of have begged to do or if you just had like a super cool mom. Uh, she, well, she knew we loved the Beatles and the Stones. So yeah, yeah I had a super cool mom. There's no question. What did your mom do? Uh, she was just a housewife. Yeah. And- yeah. Music just though? a housewife. I mean, that's a, that's a full-time job. <laughs> yeah, no, and then then she ended up working when we moved out west, but but then she was just uh, just mom. It was pretty cool. It was really funny, though. She When the Beatles first played Ed Sullivan, she had one of those old Super 8s with the lights, oh, yeah. like four floodlights on a, on a wooden bar, right? So she filmed half of it with the lights on, so there was nothing on the TV. It was just this green screen. <laughs> <laughs> right because the lights were so bright yeah so and then she turned it me. off thank god and we got you know we had this video so we could see it back but she just shot super eight like was she a yeah. filmmaker like no this- no 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 we had a camera right everybody had those little super eight cameras right that's so funny that she did did she love music as well yeah yeah M- musical did she play did she sing no dad just d- dad player sing uh he was a drummer in the navy oh okay. the navy. so we had a set of drums in the house that's pretty sweet. Did you gravitate toward those? Bang away? Um, I used to bang on them. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably the funnest instrument when you're a young kid. It's like I think every kid starts out wanting to maybe hit the drums. Yeah. You know who's actually a great uh, three-year-old drummer? And I'm friends with John Angus from The Trues. Yeah. His kid is three and they can jam Beatles songs and he can do all the Ringo fills. It's That's awesome. so amazing. Like you got to get John Angus to send you some footage. Like the kid literally, I think he just turned four today actually. What's up with all the young kids and how talented? I know. It's, God. it's a great question. Like but, seriously, all these young kids that sing and you're going like, I don't get it. Like it's great. It's awesome. Yeah. It, it well, must be the parents. Like, I guess we're in such an information culture and so many things are readily available, meaning you could go on YouTube and learn how to do something. And as a parent, if you want your child to be music or they show an inclination, you can really sort of start molding that at a very young age and the and kids they do. sponge it. They do, yeah. People are into it. Our guitarist, uh, Mike, is really into these like Instagram guitar players who are just like, there's like this 17-year-old Australian girl who is like the best guitarist he's ever seen. And yeah, just pick up some tricks. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess one of the things I wanted to ask too is it's like the 60s music that you came up on is a lot different than, you know, the bands that sort of helped establish your career. 
I guess like getting to a band like Metallica, when you first hear them, like what qualities about them made you sort of enjoy the music? Like what 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 about them made you go, oh, I, I well, dig this? Well, the, the thing was is the Metallica story is I I bought Justice the Justice album. Yeah. Um, actually, when I was doing a band called Black and Blue, one of the guitar player was friends with Lars, and they played this little hall, and I remember oh Metallica, yeah, I've heard of them, and then you saw all the kids with the skateboards with uh you know with the t-shirts so i thought i'd check it out i bought justice and i went okay there's no bottom but it's it's kind of cool i get it and i thought one was was a great song because that that's the one that was on mtv and then um they the cult warmed up for them on the justice tour right okay so i went to see the guys and i stayed and watched metallica and i realized that justice doesn't sound like the band i mean you know, it's uh, the band was big, powerful, had all this weight to it and stuff. So, I just remember kind of going like, somebody should record them. It was it blew you away in the room, and you go, well, yeah. I just went, I get it. Yeah, I got it more live than the record. Interesting. And then that just faded away, and and really, we got um, Bruce got a call from management Q Prime and said that the guys want is Bob interested in mixing the record. Of the next Metallica record, and I said, "Nah, not into that." I said, "But I'll produce it." Interesting. And Do I they think have a producer that's kind of a power no. play. I like that. Well, it was just I just wasn't interested, and in, you know, I was just starting to do a lot more production, and you know, I like mixing, but I just didn't want to just do it, do the mixing, you know. Um, anyway, and then they came up to Vancouver, and they brought a cassette tape of of the songs for the Black album, and we had a meeting, and we just talked about things. And as soon as I heard a couple of the songs, I got what they wanted to do, which, and I went and I just went, I can do this, mm -hmm. you know? Well, you know, it's interesting. You talked about, you, you know, you didn't want to just mix it. You wanted to produce it and you really touch all aspects of music. You're a musician, you produce, you do all these things. And I read about you saying that, you know, being in your room as a kid and just playing guitar and being obsessed with music. Was there something specific where you went, you started seeing things big picture, like being like, I want to know how to make a record, not just play my guitar part. Well, this, you know, like you were talking about the shredders. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was never a shredder. You know, um, I was always not the guy that was the best guitar player in the in the room. Um, but that didn't really bother me. There's there's a couple of iconic moments. One was seeing Keith Richards on Ed Sullivan with his plexiglass guitar. That was like, that's me. That's what I want. Yeah. That's me. And then all these these songs that I heard, like why. When I heard uh, All Right Now by Free, you know, why do I love that so much more than the other bands? Why do I like the beginning of Honky Tonk Woman and the sound? And then Queen and then, you know, even Good Vibrations. So right away I was interested in how do you do that? And, uh, and kind of like I was a big, I am a big Queen fan, but at the time when Queen 2 came out, I uh, bought the album and... It's just, you know, sonically and everything, it was just, I just couldn't believe it. And at that point, I realized, no matter what, I just have to learn how to make records. Do you think you're a naturally ambitious person? Like, meaning, like, I'm either going to make a go of it with this guitar, or I'm going to find another way to make a career in music. Like, did you think about things in those terms? Not really. I, I mean, um, I've just been blessed, you know, with, with whatever I've done. It's just led me to... What I did. I mean, I think once I started 
engineering and mixing, just basically your work always gives you more work, you know, and it still does even today, you know, it's what you've done. People kind of like, you know, it's like you can't really audition for a band. You can't go say, I want to record you. They, they, you know, most musicians, most bands, they have an idea of what they like, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they find the person who sounds like what they like. And so that's how I got my work. You know, even Metallic, I mean, the, what they, there was a band I did, Electric Boys from Denmark and Sonic Temple, and then, of course, Dr. Feelgood. Yeah. And they wanted basically, like, how the fuck did you do that? Mm-hmm. How did you make them sound so big? You know, did you see the Jimmy Iovine doc, uh, Dr. Dre documentary? Mm-hmm. And he, he kind of talks about what, like, sort of the luck that happened. He's like, well, he happened to come in the studio on the Easter Sunday because they needed a, an errand boy. And that was the day John Lennon happened to be recording. And then from That's that, right. it led to Springsteen and then the Patti Smith. And then from that, it led to Tom, Tom Petty, like the Patti Smith record. And so it's funny how it's like, just by virtue of making of just doing stuff and making your own momentum, it's like it will open doors that you couldn't couldn't have predicted or couldn't have had like plotted out. So. Yeah, it's uh, at at the time though it it was it's a little more it's a little different from now. Back then, I remember when I recorded the first Loverboy album, um, the Paul Jean was busting my balls about talking about uh, basically. Uh, the Pat, this Pat Benatar album, whatever. Yeah, I think it was that. And he was just kind of like, this is what it's got to sound like. Okay. You know, I'm still learning how to be, how to do this. Right. You know, I just worked on punk bands, etc., and a couple rock bands. So anyway, um, so we did Loverboy's first album. And then I did his band called Shanghai, New York. And they were saying Anton Fick, who played with Letterman for years, the drummer, right? He was telling me that basically they had the first Loverboy album with Chin, uh, Mike Chapman, et cetera, the same team that did Pat Benatar. And they were, they, they were busting the engineer's balls to make it sound like Loverboy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's In other words, there was this whole competition. And yeah. then you realize we're all just trying to make it sound as good as possible. You just make your ears tingle. It's like, what's going to be the thing that, you know, when you hear the opening of a song, it just makes you feel good? You know, it, it's interesting. You, People, like whether you're a doctor or interviewing somebody or whatever line of profession, and you sorry, when you kind of get your first gig or you do it, there's kind of a nervousness, like kind of fake it till you make it. It's like, can I pull this off? Well, I need to front like I can pull it off. And then you get in there and you do it and you go, shit, I can pull this off. Well, the, the thing, how I got my job, actually, um, I was a construction worker in Victoria and, and I knew I had to do something. And there was this course that was offered in Vancouver for six weeks, uh, one yeah, six weeks in a row by the American Recording Institute or whatever. Uh, Recording Institute of America, sorry. And so I came over for six weeks, and uh, it was uh, one day, you know, six days total. And uh, it was on Saturday and Sunday. There was two kind of like school days. Anyway, what happened is um, I went back to Victoria after the course, and I got a phone call. And it was the guy that taught, Roger Monk, an engineer. He says, do you want a job? Come over for this interview. And it was because he told me, it was because you were the one in the room that wasn't afraid to make a mistake. You were always the first when, who wants to try it? It was me, you know? And I was okay with, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was okay with making a mistake. I was, I was okay with making a fool of myself. Wow. And he's, that's why I got the job. 
because you're yeah. comfortable with that. I'd be a little fearless yeah, and, about and, it. And realistically, it's it's. I think really that that's the thing. I'm okay with it. Like I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Um, that concerned with the outcome. I'm more about the process and learning. So that's how I got my job, and that's been my whole life. Really. Yeah. Well, I want to jump over to um, you worked on a hip record. Yeah. And obviously, Gord passed recently, and we were just kind of interesting. Like, what was the experience like working with him and his process? Um. Well, it was interesting. He came over to Hawaii. He flew to Hawaii, and we we went. Uh, we went for lunch and literally, you know, the hip have always been there, right? To me, there was always there, this band. I thought they were great, you know? Um, I'm not sure I really got it like a lot of people did in Canada. Like I, I, I liked them. I, I really liked the lyrics and I liked what Gord was doing. I thought the band sounded great, but I, you know, I really didn't buy the records to be quite honest. Okay. Uh, I just heard it on the radio all the time in Canada. Um, he came over and we had a chat. And within five minutes, you, when you, when you're in a room with a person, and you talk to them about what they do and how they make it, you just you're enamored with them. And then when I was in the room with the band, it's just they have a sound, you know, and you start recognizing why what the greatness in them is. I never got past basically. I guess really, I never got past what I heard. But when I was there, I heard something else. What's he like in in terms of getting uh, feedback with like lyrics or phrasing, like like kind of on a when you're in the producer's chair? Like, was he open to the collaboration, or did he have a really clear idea of what he wanted when you worked with him? He has a process. He's got he's you know his stacks of rewrites. He'd bring out papers for a song that thick. Yeah, you know, it, which much like a lot of great poets, it's constantly working on it to get it right and that's his process i mean all we did was talk about things and really music or philosophy it's just it was just a lot of conversation with cord we became very close friends it's a world uh it was world container right yeah world container and then the next one yeah yeah the other one we are the same the same yeah um I was wondering because I love In View might be my favorite hip song, and I love a lot of their songs. But was there ever like a reference point? Like, oh, let's make a song that kind of because it was it felt very fresh, felt like of the time, and it was like the song they needed. Uh, was there anything that you're like, oh, let's make it kind of feel like this? Or do you talk in those when you're in the studio when you're working with an artist? Like, oh, let's go for that Rolling Stone sound, or let's go for an Arcade Fire kind of thing. Like, do no, not not really. I think. Um... With me, it's it's always what the band sounds like, you know. Coming from, uh, you know, an engineering point of view, Sonics, it's really, you know, it used to be um, when you first start, you over EQ, you over compress, you make all these mistakes. At that point in my career, you know, uh, when I really started becoming an engineer and a mixer, you realize that you do less of all that and you just record what's there. So to me. Um, with the hip, it was always tightening up the arrangements, the feels, you know, and, you know, um, making the most of what's there. Kind of, you know, like I think it's the same with writing generally. Sometimes when you write and you, uh, either a band or an artist, sometimes they can miss what's best in a song, which is basically, it's that outside perspective. A journalist always say that, like writers, it's like, it's like all praise to my editor who like, which in, in music context would be a producer, which is like for like 
highlighting or letting me know, though, this is the gold right here. This is like, we got to put this in the first paragraph. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, I've been blessed by the fact that I've been around so long. I've done so many records that you, you just, you pick up on these things with the way people write. And, you know, there's bands, uh, artists that really write amazing verses and bridges, but can never really solidify a chorus. And then there's people that it's all chorus and then they're lost in the verses, you know, or they just, they don't think about how it, how it moves as a record. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. So, and when I worked with, um, when Paul and I worked with Mick Ronson, I mean, he was a huge muse for me as both as a kid. I had a poster of his album play. Don't worry on my wall. I mean, when he produced us, it was an incredible experience, but um, I learned a lot about songs and, and everything because of what he brought to Bowie, etc. Anyway, and he taught me this wonderful thing. Like Paul and I had written a song called Hastings Street, and it was very kind of Springsteen. It was very rock. And he said, "That's good, but let's just try this." And we went to a different place. And he said, and it ended up being the place that suited the song. It was his brilliance, but also. Um, you know, we followed him. A willingness to go on that journey. Well, will, yeah. And and a couple of times it didn't work, right? Sure. But when it did work, it was always great. Yeah. So that was, that's really big. So I've always said, it's like, whatever you got to do to write a song, write the song and then find its home. Because sometimes it is as it was written or there's something better or different. Do you, it's always interesting when we talk to other artists and they look back on work and how it's framed. Do you ever look back on the records that you've done and you go, ah, I'd like a do over there? Or are you like, it's in the past, it is what it is? And you learn from it? Um, I learn, I, you know, every time I make a record, I learn something. I mean, uh, like seriously, just uh, uh, there's this great thing that happened on Jan's new album. Um, Jan Arden for our listeners. Yeah, Jan Arden. New record produced by Bob Rock. Um, so we, I've done other albums with her and I never wrote anything, but in, in this case, we had the conversation, let's just try doing something. Anyway, make a long story short, we, we, I have this process is how I write songs is I make tracks. Okay. Right from eyes of a stranger, everything. I kind of just make it. That's how I write. Um, and, uh. So when we did the writing, I'd play her something. She either was inspired or not. So the, one of the last days is uh, um, we needed another song. And I said, well, I've got this track, and it's kind of kind of heavy and kind of rock. And I said, but I'll play it for you. So I played it for her, and she says, okay, just give me a mic. I got, and she wrote down these lyrics. And she sat on the couch with a mic just like this and sang it. Okay. She'd just written it, sang it, and we never got it better. In that recording? Yeah. Never got it better. We tried, not even close. It was that point. So that was really, it was about a 10-minute, 10, 15-minute 10, time, and it was just brilliant on her part. And that's that whole thing of being um, so comfortable that she could do that. But she was brilliant just like that. Mm. I love that shit. Yeah. Well, that's the magic. That's why I still make records. Yeah. Is that, you know. How much, I mean, do you focus on, I guess, personality management as a producer? Like, I mean, you, you seem like somebody that's very focused on the music and the creative process, but a lot of that sometimes is also managing 
a group of guys that maybe, or women that don't, you know, they're not seeing eye to eye with you or with each other. And then there's sort of conflict. So you're going, shit, we're not getting any work done here. Are you able to sort of interject and sort of manage people? Or do you kind of step outside and be like, you, you people figure it out? Uh, it, every situation is different, you know, depending on the people. I mean, sometimes it, it does get, it can get pretty nasty. And, uh, you know, you just kind of, you learn to kind of manage it and try and focus it more on the music. But there's, um, you know, like I said, it's, it's, everybody's different. You know, especially bands. Bands are a different thing. There's always kind of that alpha male in the band. Yeah. And then there's that second alpha male, <laughs> you know, and, um, and there's always a great chemistry because of that. That the tension? Kind of yeah, the tension. And when that disappears, it's not quite the same. You know, uh, well, with Metallica, they had this rule. It's like you could never talk about in the studio what somebody else was doing. So James would, could never talk about how Lars was drumming. It was just their rule. Hmm. Okay? So I was in the in-between guy for everything. Like <laughs> when there was a vocal problem or a lyric thing, that Lars or anybody or management didn't like, no one would tell him. I'd have to tell him. They go to you with the notes. Yeah. Was that a, was that, do you think that was a productive or a pragmatic thing to do in terms of process? Because oh, would they have just been screaming at each other if that wasn't the case? Or was well, like, would it, there have been a better path? See, the thing with Metallica is is that all all people have the experience of who, whoever they've worked for. So when I came into there, uh, you know, when I recorded them, it was just like, well, I record bands all at the same time. And they, we've never done that. And I said, well, that's what I do. Um, and I told them the reason is I said, I can hear everything at the same time, all the parts. Whether we replace them or not, you can hear how the, the drums are working, the bass, everything, sonically and song-wise, arrangement-wise. So they said, okay, we're going to do that. They had never played in the studio together ever. Okay? So, um, yeah. Where was I going with that? I got lost in the memory. <laughs> Them communicating with each other and like, oh. find, yeah, finding like how to make it work. Yeah. So um, basically with them, you know, they, everything opened up when they, they felt the new experience. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. You know, even to the point of, uh, of uh, the solos on the black album, uh, we went to do the solos, Kirk, Kirk used used to come in on the last couple of weeks and just do solos. It wasn't part of the rhythm or anything, right? And I said, well, you got to play with everybody else. I got to hear it. So we had to do solos every time we did a take, and we did a lot of takes on everything. Wow. So when he went to do solos, he came in and, you know, he was kind of all over the place. And basically what we did is we made a copy of every solo he did on a cassette for every song, and that's where all the solos came from. Ah, okay. So for, because for, he wasn't thinking about it, so he got you know what I mean. Yeah. No, but that's a very long, laborious process. Sure. But that's that. That's how, that's how it best. happened. That's, for them, that's what works. Yeah, for them. and it doesn't work for everybody. Yeah. And what we did doesn't work for everybody. You well, know. You've talked about how every situation is different, and you've worked mm -hmm. with so many sort of massive sort of names. Is there a common thread through everyone you've worked with? Like, is there something you see? You know, like obviously a Michael Bublé is very different than a David Lee Roth, but or maybe they're not. I don't know. And you, you are a guy that is a common. Well, thread. I think. I think the thing is, is uh, that initial time that you spend with them is to me makes a huge difference. I got to believe them. Like 
when I had the meeting with with Motley Crue, um, you know, I had my opinion of them before I met them, and when I met them, and I talked to Nikki Six, when when I discovered that those guys, especially Nikki and Tommy, were as you know had as much integrity in what they did as probably Jimmy Page and Robert Plant mm-hmm. or Keith, and you know, I mean, they believed what they did was the best that they could be, and I get a, caught up in that. You know, so you get swept away by like the energy and the excitement and the dedication to it all. Well, yeah, yeah. They, they they weren't they weren't fake. I can't do fake. And and Vince Neil was and, just kind of hanging out in a corner. Well, no, he, I mean, <laughs> like I say, every every band is different. I mean, you know, I did a record without Vince, and it it's not Motley. Yeah, it's a great sounding album, some great riffs, but it's just not Motley. Sure. But getting to what kind of what you were saying is the common thread between everything that I've done is always the song. I mean, you can go from Michael Bublé to Metallica to Bon Jovi to whatever I've done um, or Jan Arden. It's because it's the song and that's what I like doing, making records. There's a difference. I never wanted to be the guy that just did it like Metallica. That's why I didn't do any other metal bands like that. Doesn't, I don't want to go down from what I did, right? Interesting. And, well, I mean that in the way that why would I want to do what I've just done? So to me, it doesn't get any better than Metallica. Right. Like there's nowhere to go but down. So it's like. Well, but that's not giving. You get what I'm saying? I, I don't do get mean what you're it, saying. You're being yeah. diplomatic, but I see what you're saying. It's like once you've done it, you don't want to repeat yourself or I guess repeat that process with yeah. a, another band. Yeah. In that genre. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's like you like made the best sort of metal record you could. Now let's try to make the best, uh, you know, singer songwriter record or best yeah. rock and roll record. Yeah, yeah with Buble, you know the it, the the basic premise is it's about the song, it's about making a record, and it just happens to be a full orchestra rather than Hetfield on mm-hmm. guitar. Yeah, it's really the same thing in my head anyway. Yeah. So, you know, Michael was kind of like what, and then we talked. And then I said, we talked about the song, and I said, you know, you got to, you need a middle eight. It's got to go somewhere. Changed the arrangement, got musicians in the studio, and we, and we did. First one was uh, My Everything, You're My Everything. Mm. That's the first one we did. The only song I did on that record. Right. Yeah. Uh, we've talked a lot about sort of like uh, musicians dysfunction, sort of your role in playing it. Uh, who's the most functional band or artist you've ever worked with? <laughs> Where you went, wow, that's a really healthy uh, outlook. I love making records with that person. Or oh, these guys seem really well adjusted. <laughs> well, I mean, really all of them. In the end, uh, uh, the, the thing is, is it, it's either easy or it's hard. But at the end, it's always the end product, what your product, the end thing that you're trying to make. And so when you leave, regardless of what anybody says in the press after the album, the day we're finished, everybody's going, this is the best we can fucking be. All of us. I yeah. more just want to know that, like, what band seem to be healthy communicators. I know every band has their problems. Every single band is a complicated thing. But is there like a particular band that, like, oh, those guys like had a way of talking to each other that was more that, that just seemed, as Mike's like, sort of more healthy than than other situations. Or did you only work with just uh, fucking drug fueled? Uh, Ragers. Well, you see, that's not true because I, when I did uh, Motley, yeah, they were sober, oh, okay. right? There you go, right? Yeah, interesting. They slipped a couple of times. 
but they were sober, so they were in. You know, we got to make a great record. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, I, basically, there was some great bands that like Loverboy, but Bon Jovi, the Slipper Went Wreck. Yeah. Wet record. They were a gang. Okay. Okay. That was they had the songs. They came to the studio. They loved the Loverboy stuff that Bruce and I had done. We set them up, and basically in two weeks we had everything cut. One guitar track, you know, keyboards on the right, guitar here, backgrounds, boom. Six weeks, the whole record. Yeah. And they were just in the pocket. In the pocket, just, that was just like so easy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much yeah, for your time, Bob. Yeah, awesome. appreciate it. Thank you. And then I went downhill after that. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to ask. Welcome to everybody's favorite part of the show, The Dessert. We are here with our pop culture aficionado, Shane Cunningham. Shane, what do you got for us? This is a little outdated, I guess, because I had planned on talking about this last episode, but I was ambushed by the nut. Uh, oh, yeah. Sorry again. No, it's fine. I did get a, a, some people messaging me uh, how, how weird that one was, though. <laughs> it was a weird one. Just the nut. But it was funny. <laughs> yeah, well the, well, the nut was saying, uh, whoever did that ending, because you know, yeah, we added a little music that. and tried to make it a little uh, theatrical with his end speech he gave. <laughs> Which and, is great. And the nut was like, Who, whatever creative, in air quotes, did that ending uh, needs to be fired. <laughs> but- <laughs> and I became a little self-conscious about the ending because I, I was the uh, creative who edited that. <laughs> but people were like, oh, that was the weirdest episode ever. Uh, but I love the ending. It was completely salvaged by the end and, and I thought it was <laughs> funny. And I got like five messages like that. But anyway, uh, what I was going to talk about last week was the single, The Nutcracker. Oh, yeah. Because although we did advertise it on our social media, I'm assuming a lot of people don't follow us on social media. Maybe they only listen to the podcast and they want to know how to download the song or to get the song. Yeah. The easiest way to do it is to download the iTunes store on your iPhone. It's different than Apple Music. There's a lot of confusion with this. And then once you download iTunes store in the search, just type in the Nutcracker and you have to pay 99 cents and then you you get the song. This is if you want it right away because it eventually will be on Apple Music. And you can just stream it. And then you can just stream it normally. This is for like people who just are dying to have the song, <laughs> which you laugh. But again, uh, people have been sending me videos of them enjoying the song. Oh. And this, uh, a group of girls had a party and oh, yeah. they were playing the Nutcracker. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was pretty cool to see that. And then an, another girl, woman, was uh, playing it for her dog and sent me a video of that. And the dog's kind of like chilling out listening to it. <laughs> so, this thing's becoming a sensation. Yeah. And uh, originally, a little backstory, Max had said he didn't want to be a part of the track. <laughs> but I had suspected the, the rationale was Max didn't want to come in the studio to record his part. So what we did was we used Max's vocals from when we did it live on the pod. Yeah. So we stole them from that, that recording. You used the raw pod audio. Mm-hmm. And then, It's kind of like when an artist dies, like John Lennon with the Beatles yeah. and Free as a Bird. So the producer who did the track, his name's Steve Sarkani, he was like, yo, is Max going to be cool with this? And I go, well, he did say no. <laughs> but what I'm going to do is just send Max the track and say, hey, Max, uh, you're, you're getting like this exclusive look at this version. Tell me what you think. I need like advice. And you were like, ah, just add auto-tune to my voice and it'll be cool. Yeah. 
And that's what we did. So you're on this entire track in the chorus. I I know. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about it? Well, um, I like supporting a good cause. With the socks, like we talked about yeah, at the beginning. Right? Yeah. I like... Um, Is the good cause lupus or slamming the nut? <laughs> both, actually. <laughs> uh, I think the song's really good. I think... I like being supportive of my friends. The only thing I'll say is that if anybody were to ever go, Max from the Arkells ever had a solo record, the only thing they'd find is this one song. Right. Which I don't really care. Like but when I, they search. Yeah, when they search, it's like, hey, I wonder if Max Kerman ever did anything and then he stole the record. The only thing they'll find is this song, which is a very bizarre rap song, and the chorus is, no one can fuck you like I do. <laughs> and, then, and then, like, it doesn't sound like me, but then, like, you might hear something that vaguely sounds like me. Well, so people would just be kind of confused. Like, and, and there was a part of me that's like, I wonder if the guys in the band have, this has come across their radar, and, and they're ashamed to be associated. But. Well, there is one funny part in the song where, where <laughs> Drew goes, uh, I'm going to bust that pussy open, and then you go, like I do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but do you, do you think, like, you know how you, you got the charitable socks, yeah. and it was kind of a shit product, but you're like, oh, it's for a good cause. Would you say it's in that world more so, or do you actually think it's a banger of a song? Or is there some uh, middle ground? There? Yeah, it's in its own world altogether because it's 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 a Lonely Island esque product. So you don't mm-hmm. you don't you wouldn't put it in in the company of like the Beatles who are trying to write like a very serious pop song. But is it like funny? Yes. Is it hooky? Yes. Is it well produced? Yes. So there you go. Well, one of uh, Dan Hamilton's girlfriends. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> don't know if we can say that, but uh, me- messaged him and said, "Oh, this is a Lonely Island track." Yeah, which I considered like the highest compliment that it actually fooled her. Yeah, in a sense. Yeah. Well, she's young. So. Yeah, but this could be a, a, a gateway for a lot of people to get into the Arkells. That's probably yeah. what will happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the third voice in this track is pretty good. I wonder if he's done any other work. <laughs> Side note: Do you guys know um, Pet Shop Boys from the '80s? Of course, West, Go West. West End, what? Yeah. Go West. Yeah, that song, West End Girls. Yeah. Um, I showed Lauren that song the other day, and she said it sounds a lot like uh, Flight of the Concords, <laughs> and it's exactly the same as Flight, wow. Flight yeah. of the Concords. To do a great Pet Shop Boys impression. So check out those two tracks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I'm glad uh, off the top because this will make more sense now that you allowed me to mention that we're we will not be directing your next music video. Not the next one. So I wasn't down in the dumps, but I was just like, oh, shucks, whatever. Yeah. Then I get contacted by Drew Grange, who is the main vocalist in uh, in this, this rap battle song we did, The Nutcracker. And it turns and out he's directing Max's next yes, music video. He's the director. <laughs> but once he's done uh, directing that, he said that we could fly down to the Bahamas. Whoa. And maybe direct his next video. Whoa. Which I wouldn't have been able to do had their Kels thing happened. That's what happens in life, man. Other doors open. And then Drew and his manager were talking about possibly doing a music video for the Nutcracker uh, and actually getting a budget. Oh, for wow. the Nutcracker? Wow. For the Nutcracker. I don't know if I'm going to be in that video. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but well, the Bahamas, Max. Uh, I figure true. we would record. This one won't be filmed in the Bahamas, but I figure we would just record a little segment of you uh, at the pod. You know, you wouldn't have to get out of your comfort <laughs> yeah. zone. Could think about it. We'll record it. We'll edit it. Then you can tell us whether you want it in. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there's also maybe a live performance in the works with me and Drew. Wow. Nice. So anyway, that is what I'll say about the Drew thing. That's what's going what on What a there. tease for the listeners. And then what I was going to talk about this week, I actually have been getting lots of people messaging me about Nathan Fielder. Yeah. 
And I guess a little tease for an episode coming up. We actually interviewed Nathan Fielder's best friend, one of his best friends. That's right. Uh, which was mentioned on a previous podcast. And it got a little bit weird. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it other than that. I think that's best as a tease because you guys will be listening to this okay. episode. And the next episode will be a comedy episode where we talk to the guys from uh, Gail Pyle, Filth City, and also Chris Locke, uh, who is best friends with Nathan, like Shane said. And you will hear how all that goes. And we'll <laughs> set it up. But there's yeah, going to be a very yeah. special comedy episode coming up after this one. So. An- another tease. It was the most uncomfortable I've ever been at a podcast before. <laughs> oh, yeah. we'll set it up. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so there's that. So people have been uh, messaging me information, little tidbit, clues. And recently I got someone who, I don't know if I can say their name, but they gave me Nathan Fielder's direct manager's phone number and uh, name oh, uh. and the phone number. So had this not been at an ungodly time in the morning, I would be calling this person for the pod. But since it's only 6 a.m. in L.A. right now, I don't want to call this, but the next thing you're going to hear on this dessert will be me calling the manager. Is this going to be a cold call? Yeah. This person doesn't know you're calling? No. You're just going to call? Just calling. And it's the direct line. I'm assuming they will answer. Okay. Andrew's got to pick up the phone. They say maybe Nathan's manager speaking because only a certain amount of people will have this number, right? So they're not going to assume it's going to be some weirdo from a Canadian podcast. That's how they answer. Is this a weirdo from a Canadian podcast? (laughs) Wait a second, Shane. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, awesome. That's man. So we're gonna get to hear that live. Loving it. And uh, however it pans out, that's how we'll end it. Yeah, great. Okay, here goes nothing, as I always say. Weird because there's no answering machine. Almost suggests that they're on the other line or something. A bust. Going to try next time. Anyway, back to the show. So can we just do a fake laugh in case it ends really funny? Yeah. Three, two, one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, geez. Shoot another couple other reactions. Like, ooh. Yeah. Okay, in case it goes bad. One, three, two, one. Boy. That did not go as planned, needless <laughs> to say. Cue the music. That's it. That's all. That's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Bob Rock. Uh, Mike on Much podcast can be found on Instagram and Twitter at Mike on Much. Please leave a comment in the ratings for iTunes. Also, um, we asked you a question earlier in the pod. Let us know what kind of episodes you like the most. Huge thank you to Tara Paquette and Jenna Gregory for putting together the artwork. Webmaster Dan, who used some of his vacation time in Vancouver to be Webmaster Dan. He was amazing. And he actually... Helped run the Arkells uh, Twitter on Sunday night, which was a Whoa. huge, huge help. We should have set that off the top. Help. I know. So thank you, Dan. Um, Mike McShane for sending us to Vancouver. The man. Justin uh, Stockwood. Stock- <laughs> no, we, said, we said Kim Stockwood. Kim Stockwood. <laughs> <laughs> he won't find that funny. <laughs> Justin Stockman. And uh, all you people. Thanks for listening. The Mike and Much Podcast is produced by Max Kerman. I'm your host, Mike Dierman. See you next week if we don't die on the weekend.